0: Space Jam would have had a way better plot if LeBron had to go into the Twitterverse to save his son from becoming a reply guy. Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast where we wonder just how global the NBA actually is. I'm Haley O'Shaughnessy. And I'm Jordan Liggins. Jordan, the draft is less than
1: a week away. It's crazy. Are you ready for Cade? I I'm ready. And I think this year we have some people that came from the G League, college. It's like a whole mix. Um, But the talent is there. So I'm excited.
0: I love the draft because I love to happy cry. (laughs) Yes. And to reflect like reflection cry. And then also when families are happy and cry. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to make it at least like five minutes in this year. Last year, that was my goal. I did not reach it. I also love the
1: fashion you got to respect you got to see what suit people are going to come with you know the lining inside the suit jackets what what are the shoes
0: going to be it's it's always so fun subtle nods to like where they went to
1: college Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah
0: I love it yeah. So today we have a story from my friend Alex Wong, who is essentially going to tell us about a big gap that he's noticed in the draft, um, you know, but not only the draft, just in the league at large, and that is the absence of Chinese players. It's the same in the WNBA. And in
1: 2019, actually, there was a Chinese player, Han Su, who was the first Chinese player drafted since 1997, which is unreal. Um, So that that lack of diversity um, is still very prominent in the W. You know, her first game in the league, they played against the Chinese national team. And just seeing that on the big stage in Barclays Center, like that is so wonderful. And I think that needs to be more of that in the W and in the NBA.
0: Yeah. And when I think about the NBA, there is a player, Fonbo Zhang, who's gonna be eligible for the draft in 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like a six foot ten forward. Uh, but you know, especially for this year, I just remembered thinking when I was talking to Alex about this story, like, man, again? Mm-hmm. You know, like how many years after years after years? That's what this story is about. And also, what is it going to take for this to not be every couple of years? Yeah, there's a potential prospect who might make it in the league. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, here's Alex.
3: Thank you, Haley, for having me. Excited to be here and share some stories.
0: So what are we talking about today?
3: You know, I realize there just aren't a lot of Chinese basketball stories that have been told over the years. And, you know, the symptom of that, I think, is there aren't a lot of Chinese basketball players playing in college or, of course, in the NBA, um, which... I wanted to figure out why.
0: Yeah, and especially with the draft just around the corner and there are no Chinese prospects, yet the NBA has such a huge presence in China. I've always wondered why, because this has been the case for the last couple of years.
3: Well, I think you might find out some answers to that today.
0: Okay, I'm excited. Let's get into it.
3: A good place to start is with the story of the Hanwha Qs a Chinese-American barnstorming team who traveled across North America. It's 1939 in San Francisco's Chinatown. A World's Fair is happening on Treasure Island to celebrate the opening of the Golden Gate Bridge.
4: Colorful pavilions, theaters, shops, and restaurants,
5: daring sideshow.
3: Travelers from all over flocked in to see the spectacle, but if you were from Chinatown, just a few miles from the fair, it might as well be a world away. For Chinese Americans living there at the time, the idea of traveling outside of Chinatown was this foreign concept. Two big things factored into that. The Alien Land Law of 1913 prevented the Chinese from owning land, and the Immigration Exclusion Act of 1925 barred Chinese people from entering or leaving the country. Now, take a second to think about that. You're a Chinese American living in America, but you weren't welcomed. You weren't allowed to own land. You weren't allowed to enter or leave the country. All you could do was live your life in Chinatown. For recreation, kids and adults in San Francisco's Chinatown gathered at a public playground where boys and girls played basketball in formal competitions and pickup games. It was known simply as the quote-unquote
4: Chinese playground. There's a whole legacy of sports and especially basketball in the Chinese community, really centered around Chinese playground. That's Ryan Yip. His
3: dad and his uncle both played hoops at the Chinese playground when they were young men.
4: My dad, uh, in addition to being a basketball player, actually was a singer. So he sang at Jade Palace, a small nightclub in San Francisco Chinatown. So there was almost a parallel culture in San Francisco Chinatown. It was segregated, right? Chinese kids did not really venture out except to go to school.
3: The Chinatown community mostly stuck to their own. For the Chinese people living there, like Ryan's father Chauncey, the rest of America was a foreign place. Thanks to this segregated way of living, you needed a reason to travel outside of Chinatown. And one of those reasons was basketball.
4: My father, Chauncey Yip, and my uncle, Robert Lum, members of the Hongwa Qs, the first Chinese American professional basketball team that toured in 1939 and 1940. Back in those
3: days, one of the most common reasons for a group of people to travel around the country was if you were a member of a barnstorming team. These were teams who would tour and play at different gyms across the country. When you think of traveling basketball teams, The Harlem Globetrotters come to mind first.
4: The Globetrotters and striped Trunks feature trigger-quick ball handling and play a kind of game that might be called Basketball Bebop.
3: But there are so many other teams who barnstormed across the country at the time. The New York Renaissance, the House of David, the Bearded Aces, the All-American Redheads. All amazing names, by the way. Every single one of them. But there wasn't a Chinese-American barnstorming team. That is until a San Francisco-based white accountant named James W. Porter posted tryout posters for a traveling Chinese-American basketball team. He put the posters up at the Chinese playground. The original six players selected to this team were all working-class, second-generation Chinese-Americans in their early 20s who played basketball in high school and on Chinese club teams. They were Fred Gok, Fred Wong, Albert Lee, George Lee, and of course, Robert Lum and Chauncey
4: Yip. The tallest person on the team, I think it was George Lee, was 5'10 and a half, so they, their, their style was running. The Hongwa Qs gave up a
3: height advantage, but played with speed and shooting. Ryan's uncle,
4: Robert Lum, was the star of the team. A lot of fast breaks, a lot of uh, expert precision dribbling, which, which my uncle was was known for. It was uh, said that they won about 75% of the games, and and they beat most of them uh, just because they were so fast. So that was their style um, and could be very innovative, even taken by today's standards.
3: The schedule was approximately 80 games in 100 days. It ran from November to March, with games every night and two games on Sundays. The first season started in Chicago. The Hongwa Qs traveled to South Dakota, Canada, played through the Pacific Northwest, and then back to California. They played against local teams made up of college and high school players, and they played other barnstorming teams. They didn't compete in arenas. Usually, the Hongwa Qs played in high school gyms and community centers, but hundreds of people would show up to these
4: games. You had to be pretty outgoing and brave uh, to go out and, and barnstorm outside of Chinatown.
3: The name Hongwa Qs. Translates directly to overseas Chinese, although they were marketed as quote unquote brave Chinese warriors.
4: And actually, that was the uh, selling point. The accountant, uh, William Porter, that funded the team, that he wanted to exploit. He had them use their Chinese names on all the posters. He had them speak only Chinese on the court, communicating with each other. They could not speak English. So when they went out, it was all exotic. You know, these these foreigners that are coming to your town, you've never seen them, they're playing basketball. They endured being called racist terms uh, for Chinese people. The games were being promoted
3: as if a bunch of Chinese basketball players were invading and attacking small towns across the country. Poster headlines included, Chinese Invading Friday, Yellow Peril Attacks Missoula Tonight, and warfare with the Chinese bursts into shooting action on the high school court. Newspaper articles would celebrate their style of play, but also refer to the Hongwa Qs as little Orientals and pesky nuisances.
4: Another referred to them as the boys from the land of Chop Suey. They really won over the crowds because they could see the skill level, right? They, they And so these people that had preconceived notions about Asians or Chinese in particular, they were all dispelled by seeing how funny, how, how entertaining and how skilled these basketball players were. So I think that's really the legacy is that they were willing and able to go out and show people what Asians could be and are apart from what stereotypes are, are forced upon them. Of course,
3: saying that's just how things were back then, doesn't really change how cringeworthy and outright racist the marketing strategy and coverage of the Qs were.
4: They were pretty outgoing and pretty courageous, I would say, to go out and uh, be exposed to to people who had never seen Chinese people before. uh, And their only exposure was this team. But at the same time,
3: I think the Q members really did look at this as an opportunity to finally travel outside of Chinatown see America, and on top of it, you got paid to play a sport that they loved. The Hongwa Q's players were paid $250 a month, which translates into almost $5,000 a month today. A pretty nice sum of money to travel across North America and play basketball, and certainly more money than these guys were making in Chinatown. They were also greeted like heroes in towns where there were Chinese Americans living there. This is ultimately how Ryan remembers the Hanwha
4: They were pioneers and they were celebrated whenever they went into a Chinese a community, whether it be in Vancouver or Helena, Montana, there was, there was some Chinese there. They got, you know, they went to the Chinese restaurant and got, and got free dinners and whatever. And they were like celebrities in their own little communities.
0: To be honest, I I can't tell how I feel about this so far. I can't tell if this is a happy story to me or a sad story. It's definitely one about exploitation. It's definitely one about getting to travel and see the country. I I don't know how I feel about it right now.
3: Yeah, I was kind of with you while working on this story, Haley. You know, I think the Hanwhaqus, when you talk to Ryan and when you read more about them, they're always being celebrated. Like, this is a triumph for a group of Chinese Americans who, at a time where they were living segregated in Chinatown, they got all these opportunities, all these doors opened up for them while they got to play basketball. But have we heard another Chinese basketball story from then until now? And and why haven't we heard Chinese basketball stories on, on a more regular basis since? You know, we're 80 years removed from when the Hongwa queues are formed. And, you know, when you think about the posters and the newspaper headlines, a lot of those stereotypes when it comes to Chinese people, whether as people or as basketball players, all of that still exists today. The story of the Hongwa queues can also help us explain why is there such a lack of Chinese players at the highest level?
6: I'm Gilbert Guo. I'm from Connecticut. I'm a first-generation American. Uh, My parents are from China.
3: Gilbert played basketball growing up and now coaches basketball.
6: I started playing basketball when I was nine. Actually, I think I watched like a Taiwanese show with my family. Uh, It's called, like the English translation was my MVP Valentine. Um, And that was actually something that kind of got me excited about the game.
3: When you're a Chinese basketball player, in many places across North America. You just don't see people who look like you on the court.
6: You know, I'm from Connecticut and there weren't a lot of other Asian basketball players, Um, you know, and even in high school, there were like none in, in my conference. I don't really recall anyone. When I was coaching, I remember there were times when I would come to an away gym and they would say like, where's the coach? People don't expect players or coaches around here, at least, to be Asian.
3: There is a trickle down effect to this lack of representation. If you don't have idols to look up to, it can discourage you from even thinking about playing the sport, or thinking that playing the sport and playing at the highest level is possible. The most famous example I can give you is Jeremy Lin, arguably the most famous Asian American in the world. Lin
5: puts it up, Bang! Jeremy Lin from downtown, and the Knicks take the lead!
3: When Linsanity happened, The entire world knew who Jeremy was. He was the biggest story for two weeks, not just in the sports world, but the entire world in general. When all of the Linsanity hoopla ended, he was just another Chinese guy. On one occasion, he was mistaken at the arena and not allowed in by a security guard while he played in the NBA. If that can happen to Jeremy Lin, then certainly the same kind of stereotyping is happening to Chinese basketball players around the world, like Gilbert.
6: I remember playing a game once. I was playing a pickup game at just like my local community center. I was the only Asian guy there. There was one play where uh, I turned the ball over, dribbling it off my foot. And this guy goes, yo, why are we inviting guys to come play with us who don't know how to play? And I'm like, dude, we've been playing for like five minutes. (laughs) You know, just like chill out for a second. We ended up losing that game. I was off for the next game but he was on for the next game. He dribbles the ball off his foot in that next game. So it's like, you just did the exact same thing that I did in the last game. There aren't a lot of people who just overtly say like, oh, you're probably not good at basketball because you're Asian. Like, they're not gonna say those things, right? Most people are are pretty subtle about those things. It's usually pretty quiet.
3: These stereotypes also lend themselves to scouts and people who are picking players at the highest level. Using Jeremy Lin as an example again, he was an amazing high school player at Palo Alto, but still had to send his own highlight tapes to colleges around the country after his senior year just to try and get a basketball scholarship. He didn't receive a single offer, yet he ended up becoming a two-time first-team All-Ivy leaguer at Harvard and went on to have a decade-long career in the NBA. It does make me wonder, how many other high schoolers are out there who just need a chance, but have been overlooked simply because scouts and coaches don't see the potential of a Chinese player?
2: If you talk about like, you know, in the next level in college, I could see some recruiting coaches being a little bit biased.
3: I talked to Cecilia Chan. Cecilia was born in Hong Kong and immigrated to Canada when she was 10 years old. She grew up playing basketball in Toronto, and eventually received a basketball scholarship and played four years at the University of Alaska Fairbanks.
2: You know, it has to do with your stature as well. Um, You're only as good as you are, you know, being at your height. There are going to be people that might be better than you that are way bigger than you. So, you know, I think a lot of coaches do look at that as well in terms of race. Just, you know, just the upside and the potential and things like that.
3: It reminds me of how the Hongwa Qs were described. Too small, not athletic enough. But the next part of my conversation with Cecilia highlights another key component on this topic. It's about how Chinese kids growing up in an environment where athletics aren't encouraged.
2: You know, as a kid, you're competitive. You want to be the best athlete you could be. But mostly, you know, you got to look at life after basketball as well. So you got to get your education, you got to get your degree. And, you know, what, what's a better way to get it when it's given?
3: What was it like from from your parents? Like, were they just 100% supportive or, or were they kind of skeptical about taking kind of the athletic route?
2: Um, I think 50-50. Uh, when I first started playing basketball, they were very skeptical about it, um, that I couldn't focus on my academics at the same time. So they actually didn't realize how... Uh, good I was until later on in high school when they saw me in the papers I think that's the first time they kind of realized that it it could potentially go somewhere I think once they realized that you know there's a potential of getting a free ride or a free education I think they were more on board
3: (laughs) yeah I think it's because you know that our parents their generation worked so hard growing up just to make a living just to provide for family and there's just a different way of thinking in terms of what you're supposed to do when you grow up so i ended up going to school for accounting and i became a chartered accountant in toronto and when i told my dad that i was quitting my job and starting a new writing career you know that's the most upset that i've ever seen him at me ever he didn't talk to me for six months Like that's never happened. Like my dad and I had a very close relationship. And I remember he told me that I was throwing everything away. I think what hurt him is because from his perspective, he brought us to this country for these opportunities. They sacrifice everything. I obviously don't want to apply this to all Chinese parents. And that's the one thing I want to avoid, too, is like, let's not speak about all these experiences like they're all the same or they apply to all Chinese people that we're all monoliths. But I think you especially feel that when it's the immigrant experience because, you know, they've left a life behind and they just want to see you do well. So, again, whether it's basketball, whether it's writing, whether it's pursuing these careers that that seem more risky, it's not that they don't think writing is something that's prestige or lucrative or playing sports. It's that. They just don't have the point of references. How are you going to encourage your kids to go in those spaces?
2: Oh, definitely. I think, you know, uh, as a as an Asian parent, I think uh, academic is always the number one priority. If you were talking about parents in Hong Kong, I don't see that type of movement as in like the parents will be more, you know, encouraging about athletics. They, they will still be... Um, very academically inclined uh, with their kids, because you know, being in Asia is, is way more competitive when it comes to the workforce and you know just trying to get a good job after, after getting your education. So, I think we, are we get more opportunities in North America. That's for sure. I think the opportunity level is two two different spectrums. Mm-hmm.
3: One of the things that was important to me is just to show that there are varying experiences for Chinese players. Because whereas Cecilia talked about how her parents didn't really become supportive until they saw it as a lucrative career opportunity, Gilbert's parents were, were very supportive, even though Gilbert didn't become an NBA player or you know an NBA coach, he's able to fulfill his, his dream of becoming a player and now coaching in basketball.
0: After the break, Yao Ming comes along and changes everything.
5: With the first pick in the 2002 NBA draft, the Houston Rockets select Yao Ming from Shanghai, China, and the Shanghai Sharks.
3: It's been almost two decades, and we've yet to see another prospect of Yao's caliber. Even though China has millions of diehard basketball fans, they've got a pro basketball league, the CBA,
5: and just a lot of people in the country interested in the sport. I'm in Shenzhen right now where the weather's pretty good, it's pretty warm, and we have outdoor basketball courts all throughout the city. There's, there's a nine courts nearby where I, I go out. Bob Pierce was born in
3: Portland, Oregon, and raised in Southern California. A longtime high school and college basketball coach in Orange County, Bob now lives in China, where he scouts for the Miami Heat and works with local high schools and universities as a basketball coach.
5: Again, if you're not, if you're not familiar with China or you're not used to it, the idea that there would be nine outdoor courts just full of people playing basketball you know, almost every evening, but I think to see it is just kind of amazing that there really are people who love, love basketball.
3: But broadly speaking, why aren't there? more NBA-valuable prospects coming out of China right now?
5: I think the main reason is that good players are, are put onto uh, CBA youth teams at a very young age. So they're, they're hand-picked out when they're very young. So, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, they're already on, this, on these teams. So there's not a broad-based system of developing players.
3: Basically, this means that players that might develop later in life or are undersized at a young age are simply overlooked. The most promising players have already been hand-picked for the pro league. So the rest don't get the proper training during high school to ever close the skill gap.
5: And sometimes by the time they're, they're noticed, they're, they're so far behind that they can't catch up. So that's one. The other one is that players don't have a lot of freedom to choose their own path. The path for a 14-year-old prospect in North
3: America versus a 14-year-old prospect in China are very different. In North America, you would play on an AAU team, go to the best high school, and get recruited to play at a prestigious NCAA Division I school. You would spend all of your formative teenage years being developed and groomed as an NBA prospect. In China, if you're a
5: 14-year-old basketball prospect, that's not the case. They're out of sight. You're living in a remote, you might be in Beijing or Guangzhou, but you're probably in a very remote part. You're living in a dorm, you're practicing in a gym. No one sees you. You're not having contact with other people. And so it's very isolated. And although they play in tournaments, again, you're playing very few tournament games. So unlike a high school prospect at 14 who plays his high school season, he's playing AAU in the spring, in the summer, in the fall. He's seen by all kinds of people. Here, the, the young player is really not seen by anybody other than, you know, a handful of coaches on other teams,
3: all of this leads to a lack of in-game experience against high-level competition that Bob says is a huge reason why a lot of young Chinese basketball prospects are not
5: developing into potential NBA prospects. Your chances of actually playing at that level are very, very limited. Uh, when I coached the, the, the under-18 national team, that they made it to the CBA at 19, 20, 21. And so they, they rarely played quality competition until they reach that age. And that's already the age that most players are in the NBA. If you're 14, you're not going to face quality competition until maybe you're 20.
3: The life of a CBA prospect in China is not a glamorous one. From a young age, you're living in a sports school away from your family, practicing two to three times a day. Wear and tear on their bodies is an issue. And it's all to hopefully sign a CBA contract, which again, isn't that attractive of an option for parents of that child. Which leads to the next question. Why don't Chinese players just go to North America and go through the AAU and NCAA track to get to the NBA? Bob says it might have to do with the top-down approach to the sport in
5: China. For example, the national team has you know wonderful training facilities. They have the best coaching. Lots of money is poured into that. And it trickles down slowly. So by the time you get to the, the development stages, there's very little of that. There isn't, a, there isn't that program uh, I, I would say China tends to, who can win medals in the Olympics is probably the primary focus of almost all sports programs. So a high school basketball player is not going to win any medals. So there's not much attention focused on him. The attention is focused on the senior national team and and, and not even so much on the CBA, the professional league here, the focus on the national team, how can they promote basketball and promote you know, winning in, in China, not the other way around where the team is saying, how can I help this player develop? Making
3: it to the NBA simply isn't this end goal that is emphasized to basketball players in China
5: from a very young age. If you look, for example, at the history of, say, Wang Jiju or Yao Ming or any of these other players who have gone to the NBA, the biggest fear that you'll hear from the, the authorities on the teams or even in the, the basketball association is, well, what if he gets hurt and can't come back? What if he stays in the NBA and never returns? We need that player to come back and play for us. And one of the reasons, for example, that Yao Ming became an international icon and a huge star is that he played for the, the China national team and in the NBA. And it, it, he probably sacrificed. I mean, I, I don't think he might say that, but probably the fact that he he played so many minutes for both probably shortened his career. And yet it made him a huge, huge star around the world, but it
3: came at a high cost. Bob is referring to the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Yao had suffered a stress fracture in his foot in February of 2008 with the Houston Rockets and missed the playoffs just prior to the Olympics, but returned from injury to be part of the Chinese national team in Beijing. Yao carried the Chinese flag during the opening ceremony and hit the first basket of China's opening game against the U.S.
6: Yao Ming for three.
3: They made the quarterfinals and lost to Lithuania. Even though they didn't medal, having Yao represent the host country at the Olympics was massive. And Yao has spoken about it since with an immense sense of national pride. Here he is in a 2016 interview. It's almost like gateway for us to touch world. When you have a chance When I have a chance to carry the flag of my country to walk, no, to lead the entire sports delegation, walking to stadium, that's just like a life dream become true. Yao returned to the Rockets after the Olympics and suffered a hairline fracture in his left foot in the 2009 playoffs. He played just five more regular season games the following season, before he was forced to retire because of injuries at the age of 31. Yao has no regrets about coming back from injury early, And we can't definitively say playing at the Olympics ended his NBA career prematurely. But let's just put it this way. If LeBron James was in the same situation, he would not risk an Olympic appearance if there was even a 1% chance it would shorten his NBA career. It baffles me that China's dedication to success in other sports hasn't transferred into basketball. Given the system of selecting promising players at young ages, size isn't really a limiting factor anymore. The average height of a Chinese CBA player is six foot six. There's also no lack of passion for the game, given the NBA's massive and continuing popularity in China. So, in the eyes of heat scout Bob Pierce, perhaps it has nothing to do with the athlete, but rather the sport
5: itself. Basketball is, you know, very difficult skills like shooting and passing and dribbling, but it happens in the context of You know, defense is out there and bodies are moving and you have to adjust all of those things. And you can't just do a repetitive practice over and over and master something.
3: China's success has come in individual-oriented sports, like diving, gymnastics, and table tennis, where kids can train individually and become all-world athletes through repetition. Basketball, of course, is much more team-oriented. And that kind of training is lacking in China right now.
5: And and there's not that rich undercurrent of skill development that you have in the US. You also can't go out and get a skill trainer easily. It's happening. There are people who do that now, but the average young player doesn't have that opportunity to have somebody, hey, I'm pretty good. I want to go work on my, my dribbling. I want to become a better shooter. You basically just play with your team and do that long, boring, repetitive practice.
3: All of this leads to a much larger problem. The best players start to not enjoy basketball at all.
5: There's a, there's a famous quote in one of the books by one of Yao Ming's friends, one of the sports writers who, who knew him for a long time. And he talks about Yao as a young player, you know, just starting out and how tough the practices were, the running and the duck walks and, and how Yao Ming, who becomes the best Chinese basketball player ever, hated basketball as a young player. And and the, the idea in the U.S., for example, is we want kids to love basketball. You know, basketball should be fun. You should enjoy playing. You should want to go practice. And here's the best player ever in China who hated it as a young kid because it was it was so hard and, and and was not fun.
0: If you think about it, in the U.S., if we even start to get a whiff as fans or as media or as coaches, or as GMs, that basketball is not the entire life of the player. And I mean that as in like, it's their therapy. How many times do we hear that when something bad happens? They're like, I just want to get back on the court. It's their biggest hobby. It's their biggest joy. It's their only fulfillment. You know, we start to get really freaked out.
3: When you listen to Bob talk about what basketball is like in China to a lot of these young kids, it's... It starts as a passion, but I feel like once they go through the system, you can kind of understand that all that some of that joy gets stripped away, right? It's so different because I feel like in America, a lot of these NBA players, their joy gets stripped because of the media coverage, because of the way that they're talked about. Um, like I think a really good example right now is Ben Simmons. Like a lot of people are asking. Does Ben Simmons actually have that passion or desire to want to improve on his game and get better because everybody sees the potential in him? Uh, so that's kind of how the joy gets stripped away, I feel like, in one way in America. and But then when you're thinking about in China, it's what is the end goal? You know, a lot of these kids are being put into a system and sometimes a lot of it is not about themselves, right? You know, I, I think the country will prioritize the national team. You know, when we're using the Yao example as well, like he was one of the best players in the NBA, but there was a pressure. And and again, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth. You know, obviously he spoke about the Olympic experience with a lot of personal pride, but there is an expectation for him to, to, to be the face of the Olympics in Beijing and for him to play in the game, even though any other athlete, if they had that injury, would probably not risk that, even if they had a lot of pride for the country. I mean, LeBron's not going to the Olympics because he has to promote Space Jam. I'll tell you the difference,
0: right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. But that's a really good point. And like you were saying, the the end goal maybe being different. When you see videos of these kids, you know, who are now NBA players or WNBA players, and uh, it was always like, I always wanted to go to the NBA. You know, that's the through line is their goal from day one, the minute they pick up a basketball, the minute they see LeBron on TV as kids.
3: I think whenever players from China do come from overseas, and obviously, I think Yao Ming is really the only legitimate example in terms of a player at an all-star or Hall of Fame caliber level. It's not just a celebration of his journey, but it often gets depicted as a celebration of the Chinese development system. Right. Like he went through this system and the country provided him with these resources for him to be able to come to the NBA. But, you know, I think you make a really good point with that is that it's not this kind of pre assumed thing that, yes, the goal is to make it to the NBA. That's just not the goal for a lot of them there.
0: Right. And it feels like the perception is maybe that the size is lacking, that the potential is lacking, that the talent is lacking. And ultimately, None of those are true.
3: Eventually, you do have to drill down and think about some of the points that Bob made is that there is something wrong with number one, what the end goal is for these players that go in the system. And number two, you know, the training and the actual minutia of the actual system, like is it doing the best job to make sure that they become the best basketball players? And I think those are questions that we should ask.
0: Before I let you go, Alex, I have to know one last thing, which is what happened to the Hongwa Qs?
3: Yeah, so to recap, the Hongwa Qs were formed in 1939, but they actually only ended up lasting two years and disbanded in 1941. So what happened was that was the same year that Japan staged an attack on Pearl Harbor during World War II. And so this idea of a group of Asian basketball players invading your
4: town just didn't really play well anymore. The mystique or the uh, attractiveness of having an Asian team in your town was dispelled. And also, uh, some of the guys were drafted. Some of the guys were drafted, and they all went their own ways. Uh, my dad worked in the shipyards, and they all just kind of trying to, trying to make money and, and kind of work through the, the wartime. In 1996, sports broadcaster Rick Kwan produced an Emmy Award-winning
3: piece on the queues called The Brave Chinese Warriors. Ryan's research played an instrumental part in the documentary. And he's also played a huge role in general in creating visibility about the Hongwa Qs and making sure their story doesn't go away. Ryan says his dad Chauncey and his uncle Robert, both original members of the Hongwa Qs, were thrilled to see the documentary.
4: They loved it. <laughs> they loved the attention. Uh, yeah, these guys are, I wouldn't say they're hams, but my, my dad is definitely, you know, someone who likes to be, you know, he sings and, you know, loves to be in the spotlights. But I think they really appreciate it. And that really was the most gratifying Part of the whole experience for me was actually seeing, getting them recognition. People in, in the Bay Area who who were involved with basketball, uh, you know, they remember. Some of the old timers remember this basketball team, and 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 look look at them fondly. You know, I've heard uh, from other people all over the nation. They learned of the story and and want to learn more. And there's several books and articles about them and the ba- and basketball history in general for Asian Americans. And so. It's been very gratifying to, to get the feedback from others and to uh, you know make sure their legacy is recorded in the history of Asian America.
3: The talent is everywhere, but what these players need is opportunity and for people to seek out their talent because they're playing pickup basketball everywhere, waiting to be discovered just like the Hongwa Qs did in San Francisco's Chinatown.
1: Well, that's our show. You can find Alex Wong at Stephen underscore LeBron on Twitter or at StephenLeBron.com. But please leave us a voicemail. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us your feelings at 502-874-4453 or send us an email at spinsters at bluewirepods.com to be featured on the show.
0: This episode of Spinsters was written and reported by Alex Wong and hosted by Jordan Liggins and me. Our editor is Alex Ward, with production by Alex, Isabel Jocelyn, Harry Krinsky, and Jordan. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard, and our executive producers are Peter Moses, John Yales, and me.
1: This is Elizabeth from Philadelphia, and I just want to say thank you for what you all are doing. Um, Sorry this is incoherent, but I'm just filled with a lot of rage, but I feel validated in your podcast. So just thanks for what you're doing, for giving a voice to so many non-men who love sports and are not finding the coverage and the analysis that they appreciate and want. in their media um so thank you for both your analysis but also just like your insights there and i just again appreciate everything that you all put out into the world so thank you for doing what you're doing okay love you mean it bye